he'd be against neoliberalism. He'd be against the kind of consumerist culture we see in the world today and especially cultural imperialism. He would be against all of that. And I think it would horrify him. That's Bradley Berzer, professor of history and Russell Amos Kirk chair in American studies at Hillsdale College and author most recently of Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Today we hear from Brad about Russell Kirk, a thinker who is widely considered the founder of post-war conservatism, but whose thought, our guest suggests, has largely been abandoned in the age of Trump. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In the 1950s, American conservatives felt like they were on the ropes. Faced with a liberal consensus at home and radical ideologies abroad, conservatives were fractured, broken, and, they thought, largely voiceless. According to Bradley Berzer, it took the publication of one book, Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, to help change the tide. Hailed by political thinkers and writers on the right, such as William F. Buckley, the book set out certain first principles for post-war conservatives. Chief among them, the belief in a transcendent order, trust in the rule of law and in the link between property and freedom, and importantly, a conviction that change might not always be good. Kirk was a major thinker in the post-war era, but as our guest points out, his influence has waned. Anyone looking for prescriptions about the best tax policy or defenses of someone like Trump won't find them in Kirk. So Brad and I discuss what this might mean for the future of the American right and whether conservatives in the coming years might take another look at Russell Kirk. All that and more coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Brad, Dr. Berzer, thanks so much for talking with me and coming on the podcast. Oh, this is great, Joe. Thanks for having me. It means a lot. Let's start generally and move toward the specific. Sure. Russell Kirk, as you say, was a conservative, but a very particular kind of conservative. My first question is this. Who was Kirk, and how would you describe his views to someone who has never read him, someone for whom conservatism might mean George Bush, Fox News, or even perhaps Donald Trump? Yeah, well, he, he I don't think he would identify with any of those. He didn't like Bush. Uh, I don't think Fox News would go over well with him, and I'm pretty skeptical that he would have anything that he could relate to with Trump especially with that kind of New York consumerism that comes with Trump and the gambling. Just the personality is so different from Kirk. So, Joe, great question. Kirk is, he lived from 1918 until 1994, and he's generally regarded, even by people who don't agree with him, as the founder of post-war conservatism. But what he did at the end of World War II, and he served for, he was in the army for about five and a half, six years. It took a while for the army to release him after the war. But after he had served, he was very interested in trying to bring together an idea of what it meant to be an American or a citizen of Western civilization. And he was afraid for much of the 1940s and 1950s that there really was nothing that we stood for. There were a lot of things we were against. We knew we weren't fascists. We knew we weren't communists. Generally, we didn't like ideology. But as Americans, we didn't really stand for anything except, as Kirk would have been loath to say, but also recognized as a truth, except for the dollar and consumerist culture, which he thought was very degrading, not quite as degrading as, say, communism or fascism, but pretty close. And the fact that at least communism and fascism are imposed upon you, whereas consumerism is freely chosen. He was worried about those things, worried about what this meant for the human person. 
So one really interesting thing, Joe, and I, I know you and I have talked about this before, but one of the most interesting things about conservatism in the 1940s and 50s, at least as Kirk and a couple of others defined it, they really saw it as a movement to prevent conformity. They weren't radical individualists, but they had a profound respect for individual dignity and really for the differences or excellences that come out one person to another. And so they, in many ways, they were just as worried about ideological terror and conformity as they were of uh, suburban conformity. And so that a lot of the movement in the 1940s and 50s, which is so strange to us because I think there's so much groupthink and conservatism today in 2016 going on 2017. But when Kirk was a conservative, he was essentially a rebel in the 1950s. And so you would ask, why does he matter? or What did he do that matters? I think it's it's vital to note that he caught on so well in the 1950s in large part because he was a rebel against a lot of American culture. So conservatism was seen as something that was both traditional but also rebellious. And that that carried with him. And I think that intrigued a lot of people, including writers at The New York Times and elsewhere, who thought, yeah, this is this is something we need to look at. This isn't just boring, staid kind of standpadism, but there's something interesting that we need to talk about here and figure out who we are. His critique of consumerism is a great launching point. I want to also point out another issue that was significant to Kirk, and, and you start your book with this. And so I want to quote a point you make right at the beginning of your introduction, because I think if readers encounter it, and know nothing about Kirk or traditionalist conservatism, right. they might sort of scratch their heads. At the same time, as I say, it seems like this passage can help us enter Kirk's mind and understand his positions more fully. You begin your book by describing a scene in which Kirk is standing, Russell Kirk is standing in York Minster in the UK, and is yes. imagining the 1644 battle between the Royalists and the Roundheads or the Scottish Parliamentarians. You write about this, quote, more often than not, Kirk sided with the lost cause of the Anglicans at York, those who stood resolutely for the traditions of their faith and their king, never an admirer of the Protestant reformers, even in his more objective writings and scholarship, Kirk considered them mischievous radicals, rabble-rousers and levelers, taking down history and tradition in a revolutionary whirligig and mindless melee of destruction, end quote. Help me understand this, because, of course, the very idea of royalism or of allegiance to a monarch would be anathema to the views of most Americans left or right. So it's not immediately apparent why someone would look back at those events with perhaps dismay. So why would Kirk feel this way, and what can it tell us about his ideas? Yeah, again, Joe, that for an American, I agree. That's really, especially growing up as a Kansan, having no respect for royalty or monarchy. That, that's a hard one for me, too. And I think Kirk growing up in really just utter absolute poverty. I think it's, it's got to be noted that that's the case. He's not coming into the world with a silver spoon in his mouth by any means. But he had, even though he grew up in poverty, it was a poverty that was deeply respectful of the intellect. And th there's so many things we could talk about with this, Joe, this this question, because I think for people of Kirk's generation, when they talk about loving their fathers, what they really mean is their grandfathers. And I've noticed this time and time again. There's not a lot of respect for the immediate father, but there's so much respect for the grandfathers. I don't know if in traditionalism, because I share some of that, but I don't necessarily consider myself fully a traditionalist. I don't know if there's almost something psychological there. Mm. And, you know, this last generation kind of messed things up, but the generation before was okay, and therefore we can bring it back. 
But anyway, I know that's not quite what you're asking. But I think for Kirk, and and I will admit that part of that was uh, it was a conceit on my part to start with that story. I, I really wanted to tie Kirk's life into Gibbon's life. And I wanted to show that a lot of these great thinkers, whether it's Christopher Dawson or Gibbon or Kirk, that they almost always had some kind of weird mystical vision at the beginning mm. of things. And I, you know, I can't. I can't judge that one way or another. I mean, all of these guys certainly believe they had that kind of vision. I don't think that Kirk's vision was as strong as the one that Dawson or Gibbon felt at the, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Ericoli in Italy. But I, I think it w- it meant the same kind of thing to him. And he, at the time that he wrote that in his diary about wanting to stand with the Anglicans, he wasn't a Christian or a believer at all. He was really a, at best a kind of positive agnostic at that point, a hopeful agnostic might be a better way of putting it. He he believed in a kind of natural law. He believed in a kind of stoic, ancient stoic understanding that if there's a God, that God just kind of shows up in our rationality. Mm-hmm. So he, he embraced that. But I think that the, what struck him about the Anglicans was not the fact that they were Anglican. It was the fact that they were willing to die and die in this kind of glorious way for a cause they knew to be utterly over. And yet they still were willing to do that. And Kirk had a very, very strong romantic streak. And I think if the guy could have gone out with a sword in his hand, going against some you know, communist or fascist somewhere, I think he would have been very happy to do that. And I think that was just a moment looking back. It's true, he was never a fan of the Protestant Reformation, but mostly because I think he saw it not as a real reformation, which he admired, but as a a kind of rebellion, he didn't, and I I would disagree with him, but he didn't see Calvin and Luther as anything other than these kind of rabble rousers Mm. who just were kind of seeking out their own, their own glory. And if they had been real reformers, he thinks they would have remained in the Catholic church. Now, I mean, we could get into whether that's true or not. I really, I, I disagree with Kirk pretty strongly on this, but regardless, I think the argument he's making is an interesting one. So he's never against change. He just believes that change has to be done within the kind of everyday routine. And this is the duty of every generation to kind of think about, well, do we accept this? Do we not? Do we reform it? Uh, and if so, how do we reform it while still honoring our our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers? I, I also want to note this, if you don't mind, Joe. Of course. Um, I, I said that he has this love for his grandfather. That that love is there. It's everywhere, all over. But it's his maternal grandfather. And Kirk mentions his father. But his father is kind of a ne'er-do-well who can really only kind of keep them alive, especially during the Depression, on just the most basic income. But what's great for Kirk is that his dad allows his mom to really be the head of the family and to teach, whether it's reading James Fenimore Cooper or Kirk had even read Marx by the time I think he was 12, whatever it was, it was really the, the good thing his dad did was staying out of the way and allowing his mom to be in charge. So I, I don't I think when we think of conservatives, especially in the 50s, we often think of a very male dominated. And I, I don't think that's Kirk. I think Kirk was actually quite open to not only uh, females overall, but I think the female intellect. I think he was rather intrigued with that. So obviously we're haggling over the notion of and meaning of conservatism today in America with this election season and with 
what's been going on, obviously, with Trump, but also intellectually, wondering about, you know, so what are the what are the core intellectual tenets of conservatism today in America? Is Kirk's conservatism perhaps sort of on the ropes, or is it of a bygone era, or could it see a, uh, a resurgence? So I want to quote you again on Kirk, a quote that you offer from Kirk, and see if we can get at conservatism in this third direction as well. So you quote Kirk as saying, conservatism in America has not been an ideology, but rather a drift, a movement, a loose league of people who prefer the devil they know to the devil they don't. <laughs> so so what did what did Kirk mean there? Yeah, again, Joe, I, there's so much we could talk about. And this is a it's a loaded question given and a very good one, given where we are politically. I'm not sure how much of conservatism still remains right now. So if we were to take even you know 20 conservative academics, at the moment, or maybe editors of newspapers, just people who would generally put themselves in a kind of conservative camp. I'm not exactly sure what we'd find. I I think this recent election, whether it's dealing with kind of American imperialism and outreach, or whether it's dealing with populism, I think it's scrambled things. And there's no doubt. And and Joe, you could answer that just, just as well as I could. There's such an anger right now and such a, I would say on the left and the right, a real reactionary tendency. Everything's knee jerk. There's so much reaction. Nobody is really giving a lot of time or thought to things, whether it's Fox or CNN or or MSNBC. It's it's impossible to tell the difference between a sporting event and a political debate. Mm. There's just so much. And you watch the whole... uh, Again, not to be political here, but just watching what was going on in the recent political debates with Trump hovering over Clinton and they're each, you know, they're not focusing on the issues. They're focusing on so much rottenness, whether it's pulling out the old affairs and not. Yeah, those things may be very true, but what a what a disgusting on both sides. It's just a horrible way of, of dealing with people. And they're not they're not engaging with one another. Of course, they're just talking past each other, kind of yelling to their own audience. And I think what Kirk really stood for in the in his time period was a a love of discussion, a love of dialogue. I think he would have been very taken with. Yeah, the old kind of PBS shows with the idea that we sit around for an hour or two and hash out something. Uh, maybe we do it over brandy while we're some where we're smoking, yeah, whatever it may be. I just I think Kirk was an old style gentleman and conservatism today. And I don't want to suggest that all conservatives are bad by any means. I think there's some really good people on radio, uh, especially. And I think there's some good people at Fox and CNN and elsewhere, too. I don't want to suggest they're all bad. But the trend has been towards a kind of hyper consumerist form of conservatism. Yeah, we're trying to make money with this or we're selling some product or consumerism is really the end all. Life is about getting rich or life is about getting ahead or being stable in a middle class income or whatever it may be or having the latest thing. Or it tends to be extremely sour and negative. And I think Kirk tried really hard to be both critical of that consumerism, but also trying to provide people with an alternative, you know, rather than just worrying about income, why don't we pick up a book? Why don't we recognize the kind of long-term dignity of who and what we are? And, you know, Joe, I don't know if you would agree with me or not. I just don't see that overall out in modern, what's called modern conservatism. Uh, There's just too much 
desire to get ahead to win the argument without actually thinking about the long term consequences of what a debate may mean. I think it's probably as important for, say, a 20 year old to watch a serious one hour debate regardless of what the issue is, as it is to talk about issues. I think in the long run, you know, issues are ephemeral, but dignity and decorum are eternal. And if we can't teach 20-year-olds what it means to actually have a discussion, it's over. <laughs> For a while, at least, it's over. And I think Kirk understood that. You teach at Hillsdale College, which is a well-known sort of conservative college. When you present Kirk to your students, what, what central works of his do you show them and how do you frame those works? So, so how were they significant to conservatives at the time they were written? I suppose let's start there. How were they significant uh, for yeah. conservatives in the 50s and 60s? Well, so when Kirk first wrote The Conservative Mind, and it was his dissertation, so when he wrote it, he was in his early 30s, and then it was published when he was 35. And he had spent most of his his adult life, he'd been in the Army. He was in the Army from 1942 to 1946. Then came back and started teaching at Michigan State and got a you know, number of fellowships that allowed him to go over to St. Andrews in Scotland and earn his DLIT there, which he earned in 1952 and then submitted his dissertation called then the conservatives route, which I think tells us a lot, Joe, yeah, that the title was the failure of conservatism, right? The rear guard movement. And his publisher, originally it was going to be Knopf. Knopf had accepted it, but wanted him to cut about a third of the book out, which he wasn't willing to do. And so he submitted it to this small Chicago publisher, Henry Rignery, that was mostly known for having translated German Christian works into English and had made his money, not a lot, but had made his money by translating people like, despite his name, he was his Italian name, he was a German, Romano Guardini, a Frenchman by the name of Gabriel Marcel, a number of these guys who were only being published in in Europe, he brings them over here and Kirk loves this stuff, even though he's not a Christian, in fact, really probably just an agnostic. He loves reading a lot of this theology. And so he submits his book to, uh, to Henry Regnery. Regnery loves it but doesn't like the title and says, let's give it a more neutral title. And so they come up with the conservative mind. So Kirk later said, and I think he's right about this, uh, he later said that the change of the title in many ways created the conservative movement, because if it had been the conservatives route, it would have just been a book about bygones. And by changing it to the conservative mind, it kind of gave voice and life to a number of disparate issues going on in Kirk's day. And a lot of those issues, some of them you found in science fiction, some you found in literature, in terms of literary studies and academia, some in political thought, political philosophy. And so Kirk believed that as he was writing about conservatism, that conservatism would be, as you said in your quote, a drift or a mood. It would never be an exact program. It would never be tax rates should be this or we should have a flat tax or the military should always be this or the Navy should have this many ships. He thought those things were all prudential judgments that change from time to time. So the number of naval warships the United States needs in 1947 or 48 might be radically different from what it might need in 2016. And there was no conservative way of estimating that. But there were always, we could always say, well, look, if the Navy exists, if it's promoting human rights, maybe taking food to a famished area or maybe saving somebody that's just gone through a tsunami, then it's good. And if it's protecting the United States' interests in terms of maybe protecting citizens and natural rights, 
here or abroad, it's good. If it's used just to uh, project American power abroad, well, that's not necessarily good. So does it matter if we have 600 ships or 500? Those were the kinds of things that I think Kirk found very, very temporal. And he was much more concerned with issues that mattered well over time. So in the conservative mind, he basically comes up with six issues that he thinks are very important, doesn't think they're absolute. He calls them canons. And it's interesting he does that because that's a very, very Catholic term. That means a small truth. It doesn't mean the full truth. It means a small truth. And canons are usually used only in ecumenical councils. So he uses this religious term that is really kind of an obscure term outside of the Catholic Church. But he also does that intentionally because he doesn't want people to think he's creating a new Marxism. That's absolutely what he's not trying to do with conservatism. So I hope that helps, Joe, No, it, it, <laughs> thinking it's, about it. It certainly does. And this this book made a number of, of waves, right? I think, I think William F. Buckley cited Kirk as an influence even back in the 60s, right? Oh, yeah. yeah and with Buckley, even before that, hmm. Buckley was so taken with that book. And he flew out to Macosta right after reading it and asked Kirk to be on the board of National Review. And Kirk was just a couple of years older than Buckley. But yeah, that that's a, it was a critical book. And not just for Buckley. Uh, it was critical for all kinds of people. You know, the New York Times loved it, even though they disagreed with it. They really followed him. Time magazine dedicated its entire July 4th. It was actually July 6th cover date, but their July 4th, 1953 entire book review section, the whole thing. They dedicated it to Kirk's book. And none of these people agreed with his politics. I mean, Buckley did, but New York Times and and certainly Time wouldn't have agreed. But they were just very taken with him as a character and as a thinker. So it's interesting. I think I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, but I think I remember you saying that Kirk was at one point pretty distrustful of politics or at least politicians or the practice of day-to-day sort of policy making. Is that true? Was he that way? He was. And yeah, it's a strange thing, Joe, because this is one place where I think we could be very critical of Kirk, whether we agree with him or not on his certain politics. He had really started out his career lambasting political life. And arguing uh, he he had this basically this terrible, brutal kind of cut where he would say anyone who's involved in politics is probably only one quarter educated. And he was really distrustful. And he thought that real change and he did live this, but he thought real change came from conversation you and I are having right now. Or if you had fallen down somewhere, I I would come pick you up. And if that meant that you lived on my couch for the next three years because you were having a, a rough go in life, then so be it. And Kirk really thought change came from very personal, very deep relationships with other people. And one of the things that I I tried to stress in my book, and it hasn't been stressed elsewhere, and yet I think this is the most interesting thing about Kirk. He was a deeply, to the point of almost absurdity, a charitable man. You're reading about his charitable activities, not just the money he gave, but actually living with people, trying to help them, giving them room to recover. I mean, the guy reads like Mother Teresa, and it, it's shocking to read that. And I, I, when I started reading it, I thought, oh, my gosh, not only was I so moved by it, but I thought there's no way I can portray this properly without it looking cheesy or me trying to write a hagiography. And yet it's all there. 
So pretty amazing figure, I think, even though he himself was kind of quiet and shy. He just never, never wouldn't help somebody. And it didn't matter who they were. They were Jewish or Catholic or black. He just that was not of interest to him beyond the human person. And in that sense, he was truly a dignified person. And I think he projected his dignity beautifully to everyone around him. You mentioned that he got positive reviews in the Times. Um, What did yeah. Some liberals or leftists think of him. Obviously, this was the 60s all the way to the 80s. Uh, battle right. lines between the left and the right were being drawn. Did Kirk have any friends on the left or any particular enemies? He did both. And, you know, I didn't really answer your previous question, but I think it ties into this, Joe. So the part I was going to say we could be critical about with Kirk is that he had lambasted politics. But then the moment that Barry Goldwater contacted him in the late 1950s, and asked him to be one of his major speechwriters, Kirk jumped on the chance. So the idea that he hated politics, I think at some level he did. I think he was also absolutely thrilled to be what he called the great eminence behind the Goldwater movement. And he was, certainly. And And that changed his whole reputation. So whereas the New York Times and Time had thought very highly of him in the 1950s, Once he became tied to a political movement, whether that political movement was good or bad, his standing dropped dramatically, Joe. I mean, it just, it plummeted. And really, I think we could say that in terms of sales of his nonfiction, he never recovered in terms of the sales of his books until he died. And so he was just huge. He was everywhere in the 1950s. He was on TV. He was on radio. He was on magazine covers. You know, he was everywhere. And then with the fiasco of the Goldwater campaign in 1964, when Goldwater fell, Kirk fell with him. And it really took the next 30 years for Kirk to regain what reputation he had lost because of that. And I, I don't you know, I guess we could say that was left maybe, but it was also on the right. I think a lot of people thought Kirk had betrayed his principles. And by becoming so political, he had really, really gone afoul of his own principles. And so there was there was some distrust. You know, who is this guy writing about literary theory, but getting involved with the Goldwater campaign as to enemies and allies? He was very close with Norman Thomas, who was one of the you know, perennial socialist candidates for the presidency. In fact, he even voted for Thomas just because he liked the guy, even though he was a socialist. Kirk thought he was a great guy. Kirk liked a lot of Democrats. There were a number of Democrats he thought very highly of, especially Eugene McCarthy in the 1970s. He liked Herbert Humphrey in the 1960s. He never liked Nixon. Uh, He never liked Lyndon Johnson. He did like Reagan. Didn't think a lot of Jimmy Carter because he thought he was a weak person. But you can't you can't judge Kirk by conservatism when it comes to politics. I think he was always personality driven. And if Eugene McCarthy was an honest guy, that was his man. That's how he saw it. He was very much in favor of protecting whoever was honest in the White House or in politics. Really could not stand Nixon. But a lot of that, Joe, and this is old history, but a lot of that is simply because Goldwater and Nixon hated each other so much. And Kirk was a Goldwater man. But I I can't see Nixon really understanding Kirk either, though he did read a lot of Kirk. Uh, As to liberals, there were a number of people, probably the most prominent liberal who despised Kirk was the New York Columbia University historian Peter Gay, who was most known for his books on the Enlightenment and and one of the best read historians of the 1960s and 1970s. 
not just a historian's historian, but like a David McCullough in our day, the kind of guy who, if he were alive right now, he would be showing up all the time on A&E and History Channel and he'd be selling yeah, everywhere. Costco would have his books. And Peter Gay was that guy for the 60s and the 70s. And the resentment came because Gay thought Gay really liked people like Edmund Burke and de Tocqueville. But he thought that the conservatives like Kirk had destroyed the kind of seriousness of people like Burke and de Tocqueville and had made them just ideological figures rather than real historical figures. The only other person I can think of right offhand who had kind of a mixed relationship but ended up loving him was, well, Ralph Nader, as far as I understand from what I've heard, but only through the grapevine, thinks very highly of Kirk. And that doesn't surprise me, even though their politics were very different. I think they're both deeply humane and intellectual men. But the person that came to mind immediately when you asked that was Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who was always an antagonist of Kirk, but they ended up really liking each other, too, and actually hanging out together. <laughs> and that, from what I understand, Kirk was like that. Anyone who met him kind of just fell in love with the guy. Schlesinger was a famous sort of, d didn't he write The Vital Center? Yeah, that's right. So this idea yeah. of a center that is slightly yeah. left of center in a sense, right? It's a sort of yeah, liberal well, center. And he had this kind of weird cycles of history that America always goes. It it basically goes back and forth between a more liberal extreme to a more conservative extreme. But it always ends up back in this vital center. What was the source then? Just to, just to tease out Kirk's views then. What was the source of their disagreement? Kirk was a man of strong, strong conviction. And he... In terms of his writing, he usually did that pretty well. In terms of his actions, I think he could come across as just a little abrupt. He very famously, it's made national news, he very famously, when he came back from St. Andrews and he went back to his full-time job, tenure track at Michigan State, when the new president there, President Hanna, basically started watering down the liberal arts corps, Kirk just as a young man on fire, you know, his books won all these awards, was just very vocal in his opposition and in his vocalness against Hannah, he said some things that, you know, generally aren't the kinds of things you would say in an academic setting, maybe today in 2016, but certainly not in 1953, where it was still very much a genteel, very genteel profession. And Kirk just was not, I mean, he was genteel in a lot of ways, but when he thought he was right, you know, he fought. And so he said some pretty nasty things in public, uh, was interviewed by a number of major newspapers about what an idiot Hannah was. And then Kirk very nastily resigned in the middle of term in the fall semester of 1953. And there were a lot of people on his side. There were people like Richard Dorson, who was a very famous liberal and folklorist who left with Kirk and then went on to IU and had an even greater career at that time. Not a conservative, definitely a liberal. And the same thing was true with some other people who they left with Kirk, too, because they were so angry, but they never quite got academic positions, the level of Michigan State. So I don't think they fared as well. But I think a lot of people thought, OK, Kirk, you've done well. Now you're kind of making an ass of yourself. And so people like Schlesinger, who were much more willing, I think, to get along, to go along in academia, didn't quite understand that. And, and Joe, I'm sure you encountered this. I mean, it just happens everywhere. Academics are usually very thin skinned. And it just it becomes the case that if you're too popular outside of academia and if you're too especially if you're popular outside of academia and then you kind of come into academia and people think you're rubbing your popularity in their nose 
it just does not go over well. And I think Kirk is a, a bit of a hot-headed young man, just didn't handle that well. I think I heard you say this in Grand Rapids last year. I'll quote you, and you can deny the quote if you'd like, but I think I think it actually is, <laughs> is telling, and it's a good remark. It's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so, so, no, so you say, quote, when people think of conservatism today, the image of Ann Coulter comes to mind, not Russell Kirk, or Sean Hannity comes to mind, not... William F. Buckley, end quote. So there's a sense of lament, perhaps nostalgia in this remark. Would you say so? And and, and if that's the case, what, what about Kirk's sort of habit of, of being, his sort of habits of mind and his, his form of conservatism, do you think really ought to be um, reclaimed today on the right? I won't deny that quote. You're absolutely right. I did say that, Joe, and it may have not been the most prudent thing I've ever said, but I think it is overall, it's true. There's a shrillness, especially to an Ann Coulter, and I, it just they they rub me the wrong way. Whether there's what they're saying is correct or not, it's their their tone that I think is really hard to overcome. And you're not going to win any anybody over with that kind of tone. So two things I would say, if we want to remember Kirk, aside from the charity, right? That that's just critical. The taking in homeless people and helping you know women who've been abused I mean, it's just that's absolutely critical i think to understand kirk but the two things in terms of political discourse that i think are very important number one i think conservatives have lost the language of human dignity i think that they have and what kirk really understood was that we do have to kind of promote individual excellence but without losing the need to help the poor and to make sure that our equality that we have is an equality of excellences rather than a kind of lowest common denominator. So he wanted a very high democracy. He wanted a democracy that reached for great things. And that language of humanity, which did not exist at the time among the liberals, and I know you and I disagree a little bit on this, but really the language of liberalism in the late 1940s and early 1950s, now not radical liberalism, people like C. Wright Mills as a kind of radical liberal certainly had the same language that Kirk had. Uh, but it was this language of humanity, trying to find dignity, making sure that people were themselves. And it was, and this, this is the second part that goes along with this, Joe, it was this fear of conformity, this fear that we are going to become militarized or corporatized or educationalized so much that we lose our sense of who we are and we be kind of become become one of the mass. So there's certainly nothing wrong with the people, but there's a problem if the people only become homogenous. And a lot of people, I think a lot of really good thinkers from T.S. Eliot to Kirk to C. Wright Mills, to others, I think a young Ralph Nader, I think they were worried about this kind of thing. What's happening in America? Do we all just want to be kind of good Eisenhower Republicans who all wear the same clothes, get on the same subway, go to the same cubicle, come home, eat the same dinner, uh, TV dinner, watch the same TV programs, go to bed on the same beds, wake up and start all over again? I think there was a real fear, and it, it's not an illegitimate fear by any means, especially when we contrast the life of a 20th century person to, say, a 19th century person, which the, no matter how short life could be, there was a, a lot more diversity in the 19th century in terms of cultural understanding, locality, and so forth. And we lose that in the 20th century. So I, I really think the two great things, Joe, you know, to, to kind of, I'm talking too long to answer your question, but I think the two great things are number one, promoting human dignity, which I think the liberals today do a very good job of using that language. I'm not always sure they're actually concerned about doing it as much as they are making political points. 
but no better and no worse than conservatives who've lost the language. I'd rather have people who use the language at least where it can be remembered. So I think number one, that human, that idea of human dignity. And I think number two, though, that fight against conformity. So we want human dignity, but we also want dignity of individuals and groups. And I think we need to keep our very strongly need to keep our core Western values of free speech, religion as we choose or not. I mean, all those things, I think. And I'm probably a little bit in my language more libertarian than Kirk would be. But I don't think we'd really disagree on that. Do you think Kirk could have significance again on the right or has the say the Republican Party, as well as even the center, the center left, become too focused on, say, globalism or global capitalism or neoliberalism or a lot of the things that we hear batted around, terms batted around between the left and the right today. Has, yeah. has th- That is to ask, have the concerns of Kirk been eclipsed by more global concerns or uh, more economic concerns? Kirk, you know, he'd be against neoliberalism. He'd be against the kind of consumerist culture we see in the world today, and especially cultural imperialism. He would be against all of that, and I think it would horrify him. It was one of the reasons that he broke so dramatically in 1991 with President Bush, because he thought that what Bush was doing with Reagan's army was just atrocious. Reagan had built up this huge army so we never would have to use it. You don't build up an army to use it. You build it up as a deterrent. I mean, that was Kirk's idea. And when Bush went to war in Iraq, it just it was too much for Kirk. Kirk at that point, yeah, he wrote he spent the last three years of his life because he died in 94 writing against the new imperialism and the new world order and Bush as the leader of the new imperialism and really predicting that we'd go through almost 100 years before we got out of it again as Americans that we were trying to homogenize the world. In that sense, I think a lot of the left would find a lot in Kirk they would agree with. They might not agree with all of his cultural conservatism, but I think they would agree in large part with his fear of that homogenization in society. Two years ago, and this is kind of a personal story, but it's still a professional one. About two years ago, I was asked to give a talk because I was at the University of Colorado, which was a great year, but I was asked to give a talk to the history department there on Kirk. And two people that I admired deeply, I did then, I still do, a husband and wife team who are at CU, actually the, the husband's retired, but and they're both pretty well-known figures. But at the end of my talk, they told me, actually they told me about two days later, but it was at the end of my talk and they had a discussion and when they went home that Kirk was either the single most relevant figure today or the single most irrelevant figure today. <laughs> and I don't know, um, this was told to me by the wife and I never, she never told me who argued what side. But I thought, you know, far from being offended by that, I actually thought, yeah, that's <laughs> what a great way to think about Kirk. And really, Joe, if we do remember Kirk, I think we'll remember Kirk, at least if we remember his arguments. I think we'll remember his arguments only because his arguments are timeless. And therefore, he was just one element in a long line of the tradition. I, you know, if someone said to me, OK, right now, should I read Russell Kirk? I might say, yeah, you know, and especially his fiction I would read uh, and maybe a few of his essays. These are great things. But I think if I had a really good student come to me, I mean, just a great student, and they said, look, I really want to read Kirk, I'd probably say, you know, if you haven't read Edmund Burke, I'd go back and read Burke first. And if you haven't read Edmund Burke, you know, read Burke, and then maybe after that, read St. Augustine, City of God. I mean, I think Kirk would be high on the list. 
but I don't think he would be before some of the people he relied upon so strongly. I'd rather a student go back and read the sources that influence Kirk. So what's great about Kirk is, at least in his thought, is he's bringing forward Augustinian thought into the modern world, or he's bringing Burkean thought. And he's not an original thinker. I think there are things he does that are original, and his writing style is unbelievably good. And in that sense, it's purely Kirk. But what he's saying is very old, and what makes him good is simply because he's saying old things in a very new, timely fashion. I do like to ask uh, one or two questions about you and, and what, what got you interested in this topic. I guess I'll, I'll keep it I guess I'll keep it to one since you have talked a bit about that. So now that you've written the one major biography of, of, of Russell Kirk out uh, in hardback um, University Press of Kentucky, it's actually it's a great looking book too. Isn't um, it? So they you've written you've written the major biography of Kirk. Uh, what's what's next for you? Well, I still, yeah, Joe, I'm, I'm still very taken with biography. I, I personally think, at least for me, as I'm sounding very subjectivist here, but I think for me, biography is the best way to express ideas. I'm, I'm utterly fascinated, and I guess this is probably the Christian humanism in me, but I'm utterly fascinated by life. I'm, I'm fascinated by how people live life, what they do with choices. I'm fascinated with free will. As much as a lot of what I studied in grad school, I, I did a lot of environmental history. Yeah, I was look. I did a lot of anthropology. I really enjoy that. I, I enjoy looking, for example, yeah, one of the best articles I ever read in grad school was an analysis of how many, say, you took a, a group of fifty Comanche Indians, how many buffalo could they could they kill and then use and process? You know, what was the carrying capacity, say, in Western Nebraska in 1860? I love that kind of stuff. But I'm more interested in reading a diary or a memoir or letters and trying to look at, well, okay, now we can actually see why did this person make this choice? Was it a good choice? Was it a bad choice? Almost all of my books that I've written in my professional career have been biography, and I, I plan on sticking with that, at least for now. Again, because I just it's very edifying for me and I'm always very pleased if I can get into the mind and not to sound cheesy, but the soul of another person. That's always my goal. And I, I'm pretty convinced that all real history is at some level biography, not that there aren't environmental factors. Obviously, <laughs> you know, we don't we're not dressing the same you in New York, me in, in Michigan as people are in Houston today it would be pretty stupid if they were. You know, I think there are great differences. Environment matters. And I think big ideas ideas matter. I think economy matters, but we still have that free choice. So that that's what I'm really interested in. And so right now I'm working on a biography of another figure who was a lot like Kirk and about the same time period. He was born five years before Kirk by the name of Robert Nisbet. He was a conservative, but he was much better known for his kind of radicalism in sociology. And he was really he was admired by both the, the new left and the new right in the 1960s the two great student statements, the Port Huron statement, the radical new left statement, as well as the, the Sharon statement by written by Buckley's students in, in Sharon, Connecticut. They both drew heavily upon Nisbet. And I'm fascinated by that. Why is it that both the left and the right like this guy? And what is it that he has to say? So that's, that's what I'm working on now. And I've got a couple of other things on the side. I'm looking at the Inklings, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And believe it or not, I'm very interested in certain aspects of pop culture. In particular, I'm very interested in the founding of DC Comics and Batman and Bruce Wayne as a figure in American literature. Mm. So which I'm sure many, many, uh, Many conservatives will scratch their head when they hear that, but I've been a, a big fan since 1971 when I was three. Brad, I look forward to all of that 
As oh, always, it's great been a talking pleasure to talking you. with you. Yeah, I've, I've I've enjoyed knowing you and working with you ever since I first met you. You're you're you've got a great soul, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what you do with with your very long life in front of you. Brad, as as always, you're too kind. Thanks thanks very much for talking with me. That was our interview with Bradley Berzer, author of Russell Kirk, American Conservative. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.